0: We gave you reasons to study not only Philippians, but the Bible. One, because the Bible is living and breathing and active. It gives us life. It speaks into our life. It teaches us. It corrects us. It rebukes us. It it has a way of, uh, one, speaking to us, God speaking to us, but two, actually motivating us in our spirit. It's not a, a sort of, oh, no, I have to do this. It's more, it lifts you out. Uh, it lifts you up, it draws you near, it wants you to come, yeah, we can do this, come on, come forward. So, so the um, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 should be the scripture reference there. Um, Jesus himself said, search the scriptures because they speak of me. So there's a really good reason to study your Bible anytime, since Jesus said the things about him. And as Christians, I think the more we can learn about Christ, and know Christ, the better off we're going to be. if We're going to follow Christ. Uh, three, um, Jesus said that the sum of the whole law could be summed up in this. Um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others as yourself. And um, I think one of the components of that that we skip over often is the mind. For some reason, we tie in loving God with the heart and the emotion, but not so much the intellect. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with your mind as well. So it's important to study, to engage your mind, to think on Christian things. That's what Christian meditation is. It's not an emptying of your mind. It is actually a filling of your mind with things uh, from the Bible and pondering them and meditating on them and allowing them to work in you. And so the mind is an important part of worshiping God, okay? Um, and then why did Paul write Philippians? Well, he wanted to thank them for their gift that they sent through Epaphroditus, and who almost died delivering it. He wanted to update them and inform them of his condition and then tell them also he'd be sending Timothy. Uh, none of this stuff we got to, but it's in there to encourage them to stay in unity, and we'll get to that tonight, and to be careful of their moral conduct. So that, those two, point number three, we're actually going to see here at the end of uh, chapter one. So far we've been looking about, uh, we've sort of been looking at Paul's rejoicing, his tenderness towards this church, his love for this church, how, how dearly he holds them in the first part of the letter. And um, tonight we're going to look at... Um, the sort of response that he asked for. And then obviously um, Philippians was written because God wanted us to be able to learn from it for all time. So Um, number seven over here, whoops, what did I do? Number seven over here is Philippi. Okay, we looked at that. Uh, That's the the European continent there. Um, This over here, Turkey, all in here. Um, From one, two, three, right around three, Paul's missionary journey usually goes to, this first one went to Ephesus on 13, and then he returned back to Jerusalem. He planned on, actually taking the same route, but as we saw in Acts 16, the Spirit wouldn't let him go down to Ephesus, and as he tried to go north, it wouldn't let him go up to Bithynia either. And he, uh, so he headed the only way he could, and then he had a dream about a Macedonian man that said, come over here and help us. So he, he crossed over to Macedonia. First place he visits, the church of Philippi. Well, it's not a church yet. It's basically... Um, he, he meets a lady named Lydia, uh, she gets saved, her family gets saved, and there's, there's one little house church in Philippi, if you remember from Acts 16. And then uh, persecution arose, uh, they threw him in jail. He, uh, uh, the jailer ends up getting saved. Remember there's an earthquake and he, he's free and the jailer's about to take his own life. He says, no, don't do that, everyone's still here. Don't worry about it. And uh, so the jailer and his family. So as far as we know, there's two families that have uh, decided to follow Jesus in Philippi, which is a Roman um, uh, province. Okay? So not only has the, the gospel impacted Europe, it's impacted the Roman Empire. It's come head to head with the Roman Empire, which is by far and away the greatest um, empire, nation on earth at that time. And so um, the gospel is, is spreading into new, new territory. And we talked about all that, syncretism and things like that. Okay, so um, we, will, we looked at the implications for San Francisco, some of the um, similarities. Um, and then we talked about koinonia being more than just a fellowship of sort of uh, having cake and cookies. It was a fellowship, um, Paul calls it a fellowship of suffering at times, but it it was a fellowship in the gospel. In other words, they were all partnered up. They had a a common goal. They had somewhere they were going together. And so for Paul, koinonia meant a lot more than just having a good time or spending time with your friends. It meant being united in a common purpose to accomplish something for the Lord. Okay, Um, And we looked at, Philippians 1.6, we looked at Paul's, all the A's we're going to go through here, Paul's affection, Paul's appeals, Paul's attitude, and this is where we left off. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to there one, uh, Philippians 1.18, and we'll pick back up. So, quick recap. Um... Before I, I jump in, are there any questions about where we've been the last couple of weeks? I'll give you a, an opportunity to ask some questions here. Okay, good. Everybody knows where we're, what's happened. Good. I must be a great teacher. No questions. All right. Um, either that or you're all too shy. Okay. Um, so we left off really... We left off, we we were going to read verses 12 through 18. We actually only got through verse 14, but we did go through all these points. Um, And... um, How's the text? Big enough? Okay. Maybe a little bit bigger. Better? Okay. So picking up, we'll reread verses 12 through 18, remind ourselves where we've been. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, uh, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident of my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition. Uh, not, they're not sincere in it, and supposing that they would add to my affliction or my chains. But the latter, they speak it out of love and knowing that I am appointed for them, uh, appointed for the defense of the gospel. What Paul's saying here basically is look, um, I understand I've been away a long time, I'm in jail. I, I know, despite my own difficulties, I want to speak encouragement to you because I know you guys are missing me and I know you're worried about me and you're probably fearful and you're probably wondering what next. We're losing our leader. And um, and so rather than dwelling on his chains, though he makes mention of them, he dwells on the good that is happening. And we talked about the, the fact that Paul had this amazing ability to focus on the positive. I mean... Uh, we read a, the, the passage in Corinthians, um, you know, where he, he'd been basically beaten three times with 39 stripes. He'd been shipwrecked a couple of times. He'd been jailed a couple of times. He'd been stoned to death, basically. Um, he had, you know, people were after him everywhere he went. I mean, this man did not live an easy life. He led a very, very difficult life wasn't like well I'm you know it's the apostle paul he wrote a third of the new testament he's the greatest apostle ever well he did it wasn't he was so so close to god and so godly that he just you know oozed and radiated success i mean his most of his journey was persecution and pain and suffering and I think as Christians we tend to only see Paul as the victorious Paul, and Paul's victory comes in that he will not allow his attitude to be defeated, no matter what his circumstances are. That's the victory. Okay, Paul's success comes from he doesn't the outward whatever is happening outward doesn't matter to him. You know he says I've learned to be content in all things. You know, whether abased or you know, whether you know, living high on the hog, uh, it, it doesn't matter to me whether I have food, no food, bedding, no bedding, whether I live in a palace or a dump, it doesn't matter to me because I thrive wherever I'm at. And that's, you know, that's a something of the will, that's something of the spirit, which is it's an amazing something of the will and spirit. Um, but he could choose to focus on the positive. And the positive is, Hey, I'm between two guards chained up in a Roman jail. People are out there preaching the gospel out of, out of uh, selfish ambition because they want to prove they're better than me. And my positive is some of Caesar's house is getting converted. And despite the fact that you guys want to preach the gospel out of selfish ambition, although some of you preach it from goodwill, uh, it's still getting preached, so I'm happy. Okay, so that's, a, you know, that's focusing on the positive. Um, he encouraged others. Um, his the entire purpose here of this whole you know passage is to say, "Don't worry about me. Um, things are going great. You know, I'm in jail. Life is good." <laughs> <laughs> um, he was an encourager, and then um, the fact of the matter is, his attitude allowed him to be effective. People were getting saved. Things were happening, um, and um, and so that's. You know that in that says something about um, you know our circumstance I think a lot of time we get into really rough patches and we have a tendency to say well I've got to pull out from the Lord um, and take care of stuff because it's uh, it, things are rough right now and some of your most effective ministry I'm going to use the word ministry which is basically you know just empowerment from God to touch other people's lives. Some of your most effective ministry can come in some of your most brutal circumstances. It can have a grace on it that can change Caesar's house if you have the ability to focus on the positive and encourage others, okay? All right, that should bring us up to date. Any, any questions on that? Okay. Okay. All right. So, verse 18. Um, What's interesting, you know, it's, you see this, to live is Christ, which is the name of the study right there. That's what's called a pericope. If you've never heard that term, pericope, that's where somebody who's gone through the text and put little, you know, like subtitles over certain passages. Um, and they break the text up into little chunks, right? Um, you'll notice that the pericope here in verse, in the NKJV is in a different place than it is in the NLT. The To Live is Christ section starts with verse 19 in the, in the NKJV. It starts in verse 20 in the, in the NLT. But actuality, it should really start in verse 18. That's where we're going to start. Okay, So in Skip's version... We would have (laughs) to live as Christ right up here over 18. Um because this is a this is the the junction statement. Paul has um he's given his attitude in the present. Though he's in this suffering and trial and this circumstance, he's full of joy and he loves them and he can't wait to see them and he's blessed by them. And there's we've gone we went through that, okay? And then he gives his attitude, he's going to give his attitude to the future, okay? So he's going now from the present, here's what my circumstances is, I want to update you, and, but things are going great, things are wonderful, people are getting saved. Uh, he's going to have this junction statement, now he's going to say, and here's where we're going in the future, okay? So we're going from the present to the future, and 18 is the, is the, the statement that joins the two. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus, according to my earnest expectation and the hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now uh, also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. So I'll read those in the NLT now. Uh, 18 through 20, but that doesn't matter whether their motives are false or genuine. The message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that as you pray for me, and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. Okay, um, Paul's getting real now. Um, in verse 19, uh, Paul is, is sure that God still is working in him. Uh, remember verse uh, 6, for he that began a good work in you shall complete it until the day of Christ. Remember that? Um, we're back, we're sort of back in verse 6. Listen, God's not done with me, I know that um, I will not be ashamed. I know I have fought the good fight. I know I will continue to fight and that um, God still has things for me to do. And he's deeply aware of the, of the fact that their prayer for him has a lot to do with his success. Um, and, and that shouldn't be you know, overlooked. For I know that as you pray for me, and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. Paul's saying, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out of this okay. Okay, I'm going to be all right. Don't worry about it. I'm going to actually, I, I will not be ashamed. I will actually be delivered. And I know it because I know you're praying for me, and I know that the, the Spirit of the Lord will see, see me through. Now, I mean, that's a, that's a prayer of faith right there. You know, the man's been in prison for a couple of years, and that's, that's not even mentioning the journey, that he the long journey that he had to take to get to prison with the shipwrecks and all that stuff. So, so he, he hasn't seen, you know, um, really freedom for a long time. But he, he's not worried about it, and he's, he, in faith he knows they're praying for him, so he'll be okay. And... Um, it's a reminder that, you know, Paul always, he said early, remember early on he said, listen, I pray for you all the time. I think about you all the time, and I pray for you all the time. An amazing statement. And then now he's saying, and I know you guys pray for me. And there's no, like, if, ends or buts, or maybes, or whatever. He's assured of it. He knows, you know, because he must have at some time, uh, taught on it or somehow instilled this into these people the value of prayer. And and um, no matter what Paul goes through, he knows that if there is prayer, the Spirit of the Lord will help him. And so it reminds us of the value of praying for our church. For, for me, it has the implication of I need to be praying for the people that come into this church and for their their growth, and their health, and their their well-being, and for life, the life of Jesus to flow. And from from from, from your perspective, it would be praying for your leader's most, you know, obviously the most recognizable leader would be Pastor Terry. But I will say this. There is, we talked about spiritual warfare in week one. There is, I mean, basically, when you're in San Francisco and you have a church that's thriving, you might as well have a bullseye on your back. And it's important for us as a church to be carefully, um, um, maybe I don't want to use the word carefully, to be reminding ourselves of the value of praying for our leaders. I I don't think it is wise to just assume that everything will be all right. Paul doesn't he assumes it will be all right because there's prayer. He assumes prayer first. He doesn't assume, ah, God's in charge, it's going to be fine." He assumes, "You're praying and the spirit of the Lord is there, it'll work out." That's a there's a big difference, okay? And so it's a reminder to me to be praying for all of you and for everyone else to come into the church, but it's it should be a reminder for you to be praying for your leaders here, because um, let's face it: if you know, strike the sheep and the, the sh- strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. Right? Strike the shepherd, the sh- the sheep will scatter. If there is going to be health, life, and blessing that flows from this church into people, um, the target is going to be the shepherd. From the enemy's standpoint, because he only has to take out one person to destroy about. You know, whatever fifteen hundred. So um, that's that was a good reminder for me. Um, Any questions so far? Okay. So now the other key here is what does deliverance mean? Paul is saying, listen, it's all going to work out. It's going to lead to my deliverance. It'll be fine. Don't worry about me. But at the end of verse 20, he's saying, Christ will be magnified whether by life or by death. In the NLT, you see, um, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. So deliverance to me is, you know, I think we have, um, and, and you know, I say we, Sometimes we have a distorted image of what deliverance is supposed to look like. I have myself prayed for sick people that have gone home to be with the Lord, and, and how do I know that that prayer wasn't answered in the positive? Because deliverance doesn't necessarily have to look like what we want. It can be what God wants, and that can be life, that can be death, um... You know, I don't see in Paul him saying, you know, I know I'm going to get out of prison. I know I'm going to be fine. No one's going to you know, persecute me. No one's going to, you know, they might, they, I, I'm, the trial's going to go fine, and I'm going to walk out of here. I don't really see that. Okay? What I see is, hey, <laughs> whether I live or die, Christ is going to be glorified. Okay, which brings us to to verse twenty one, which is the title of the whole study because this is, this is the key statement for Paul, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, um, an, an amazing statement there because he's basically saying, um, if I live, that's great because um, I will, you know. I'll thrive, I'll do things for the Lord. People will continue to be saved, maybe out of Caesar's households. Maybe I'll come visit you. If you read down further in the leather, you see all the good things that can come from him uh, living. And, and so there, there's a positive. You, know, you talk about Paul focusing on the positive. He sees positive in both. Okay, He can find the positive in both. If I live, great, all right, beautiful. I got work to do for the Lord. And if I die, hey, I'm going to be with him. Awesome! It's like you know I, I put in here. It's a win-win for him, right? So to him, for him, living for Jesus is rewarding. Dying is even more rewarding. It's a win-win for him. Uh, To live is great because the Philippian church needs him and he can help them. If he is allowed to live, he will continue to preach the gospel and bear fruit in his labor. He will continue to be a force for the kingdom. People will come to know Jesus, be strengthened in their walk, be strengthened in their growth and their pursuit of knowing him. He knows, as he said in verse 12, 13, that if he remains in jail, people get saved. If he gets out of jail, he can strengthen the brethren, as it were. Okay. It's a little, little note I wrote on that. But he also knows that to die is gain or profit because he will gain his consuming life's passion of knowing Christ and seeing him in his fullest in his fullness. Okay? I mean it, it's tough to discourage a guy like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what a what a great attribute. I mean, you talk about a, an encourager. I mean, he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, you know, if I live, look at what I can do. And if I die, man, I'm going to be with Jesus. You know, it's, it's like every card the enemy has, he's got a card to play. He's got a counter card. He's like, I win. I win either way. Um, it's, it's an amazing thing. Let's look at, um, and by the way, listen, um, just a side note that I was thinking about. If your life, Okay. I don't know where everybody's at. I assume everybody here probably has at, least, um, has at least decided they want to explore who Jesus is, if not decided to follow him. And probably you're more towards the second half if you're in a Bible study. Okay? But I, I'm not going to make any blanket assumptions. Within that context of where you are in following him, we're all in different places about how much we're really following him. And then because of whatever our capacities are, we're all in different places there. I mean, it is quite possible I'm like on the bottom of the list of everybody in this room because I might not be fulfilling the capacity that God gave me to the same level as somebody else, even though I'm a pastor. I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I don't pretend to, to, to claim you know, spiritual greatness, and I don't judge anybody else's. That's a dangerous game. Um, But I will say this. If you're building your life on anything other than Jesus Christ, when you die, you lose. Okay? There's only one way Paul can make the statement to die is gain, and that's because all his faith and trust is in the Lord. Look, if you put your faith in your finances, your job, your title your family, your your home, your cars, all that stuff is gone the second you pass away. And if your life is built around it, if that's the sole purpose for your life, you lose. The only way you gain is if you're building your life around what's eternal. Okay? So... I mean that was a profound I, that was a something that came to me that I thought was profound is that you know despite the fact that we can be following the Lord, there's different levels of how much faith we're putting in Jesus because however much faith we put in other things that are going to go pass away when we pass away, we're going to lose those things will be at loss to us. The only way that they, that death can be a complete gain is, is if Everything is for the Lord. Okay? All right. So I want to you to pick up the handout that has a, it's two sided, just a one page. Uh, one side it says Motyer, the other side says Fee. Um, turn to the J.A. Motyer quote the, the Christian indecision. I love this opening phrase. Christian hope makes the outcome certain but leaves open both the time and the fulfillment and the means by which the goal is reached. Therefore, at the end of verse 20, Paul can do no more than express the alternative possibilities, life or death. He knows nothing of the future other than it must be one way or... It's one of them, all right? One way or the other. This is, these are the two choices. And... There's an equal desirability of life and death for Paul. What does Paul mean when he says that to live is Christ and to die is gain? In, three, um, in um, Philippians 3, 4 through 8, he used the word gain in a way which illuminates the meaning here. In that passage, he's looking back to the day when Christ became everything to him. He candidly added up all that might have been counted as valuable. He had found Christ more valuable and gladly surrendered all to him and for him. But this attitude persists. Paul turns to the present tense. He is, ca- he is still counting and still for finding the surpassing worth of Christ so that his whole life may be summed up as a progressive abandonment of everything else in the interest of possessing more and more of Christ. Gaining Christ, then, is another way of expressing the Christian's progressive experience of sanctification, growth, and grace are becoming more and more like Jesus. Returning to verse 121, Paul defines his life as gaining Christ and death as the ultimate gain. In life, he is absorbed, determined, and consecrated in his living for Jesus, and in death, he expects, expects to possess Christ totally. Okay, let me tell you what I think is going on in there. Basically, the the martyrs making the contention that Life really is a process of gaining Christ, with the the ultimate end of gaining it all. Okay, the the final gain is that when we when we leave the time side of eternity, okay, when we when we get to that that other side, whatever it looks like. That's the final gain, and then the but the starting point is. You know, Paul's, we looked at this the first week, Paul's Damascus road journey when he first meets Christ. And that in between the two, there's this progressive gaining of Christ. Okay? More and more he gets rid of his old paradigms, his old way of thinking, his old life, his, the things he put faith in before he met Jesus. They... That is a progressive journey. And the Bible uses phrases like, you know, pick up your cross daily, die to to self, those sort of things which aren't real popular. Um, But that's what's going on, is there's this progressive paradigm shift where each little segment of my life, each little part of my life is, is constantly getting infused by Jesus. And I may only be here at the starting point, I may only just be, I think I believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter. Or you may be here where, you know, part of my life looks pretty good, and then I know another part of it, there's still a long way to go. And a lot, a lot of us are there. That's okay. It's a, it's a journey. It's a journey of losing yourself and gaining Christ. And ultimately... Will finish the journey by completely gaining Christ when we die, and so when I look at it that way, it's such a beautiful passage to live as dies. Uh, you know, I found myself pondering death, and I found it myself actually almost desiring it. <laughs> and I'm not a person who really, you know, I do think about death as a pastor. I perform funerals, or you know, um, I, I at least am around funerals enough. To uh, Marty gets the bulk of them, so I don't. I don't. But I, I'm a. I know people in my in the church. You know, whenever somebody passes away, I usually am informed of it. And so there's death is, is a part of of a pastor's job. But I don't re, haven't really found myself sort of longingly. Desiring, death as the ultimate gain. And I think that's what's beautiful about Paul is that. Um, he can put it in perspective. See, see, death to him is not an escape. Okay? I think for a lot of people, death is like, get, let me get out of this thing. I don't like it here. That's not what Paul's saying. It's not, he's not a fatalist who's quitting or wants you know, to get rid of his chains. He, he's, not, he's not worried about getting beaten again. He's not worried about you know, the pain and suffering of life. He's beyond that. He, he can say, you know, if I live, great. And if I go, great. And I'm, <laughs> mm-hmm. not about you, I'm not quite there. So, but um, I'm working on it. But, I mean, that is our gain. We have that, you know. I've gone, I, I will prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. I mean, the promise, the promise, there is the promise of a pain free existence at some point. And we're not supposed to long for it just to escape this life, but the, beautif- the beauty of living in his holiness and his completeness, his wholeness, and in glory, where there's no brokenness, no separation, is a wonderful thing to possess. And so, death for the Christian, you know, oh, oh death, where is thou sting? Right? Where is thou staying? Death for the Christian is not, it's not something to, to dread. It's not something to, oh, I'm not going to think about that. I won't think about that. You know. It's actually gain. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. We gain Jesus. We, we gain the ultimate um, glory, eternal and eternity in a place that has no brokenness. All right, so hopefully I, I made heaven appealing to you because <laughs> it should be very appealing um, and not in a way that we want to escape earth. So back in Acts 9, we saw Paul struck down in the road. Uh, his accounting system was completely broken down. Everything he had put value in, everything, his stock and trade, you read it later on. He says, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I, was, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, I was this, I was that, I had it all together. I was the man. And now none of that means, you know it's all garbage. It's garbage. If we get if we ever get to chapter three, we' we'll, we'll look at that. All right. Um, in verse uh, 25 and, and 26, all right, I'm sorry, 22 should be on 22, right? Twenty-two. Uh, if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two desires. I long to go to be with Christ, which would be far better for me, but for your sakes, it's also better that I continue to live. Okay. Um, and, so, and then 25, Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. When I come to you again... You will have even more reason to take pride in Jesus Christ because of what he is doing through me. Paul is now saying okay, um, death is really preferable, okay, but life is more profitable for the kingdom. So Death is preferable, but life is more profitable, especially for you guys, the Philippian church, okay? Because you, you know, I want to come and, and help you. I know you're struggling, you're going through suffering. We looked at that and in 2 Corinthians. He writes them and he says, look, you guys, you should look at this other church who's in the middle of suffering and pain and there's things going on, persecution going on, and they're still giving. They're, they're abundantly giving and helping me, okay? Um... So he longs to go and visit with him, and, he, and then he makes sort of his own uh, opinion here. He goes, since even though death is more preferable, since it's more profitable for me to stay alive, I'm going to assume that God's going to keep me around because he's got some more things for me to do, especially with you guys. In essence, that's what's being said here. Okay? Um, and in verse 25 and 6, you'll notice... And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Two, again, joy and rejoicing. There's a fourth time in this one chapter, Paul has talked about joy and rejoicing. Okay. Um, So that's a a continual theme. that we keep repeating and visiting. All right, any any questions so far? Okay, we'll take about mm, five minutes um, to do whatever you need to do. There is some water, there's a water jug around the corner. Everybody good, am I on? Yeah. All right, here we go. The last pericope. In chapter 1. Okay, striving and suffering for Christ a fun topic. Um, Paul has at this point if you've been with us for a few weeks hopefully you understand that this has been like the most one of the most tender letters that Paul's ever written. There's there's a real love for this church. There's a real koinonia fellowship. There's a real bond between them and um, and the sort of boisterous and bold Paul uh, that you see in some of the other letters um, has been the very tender Paul. But Paul has more than one side. And you will not find any letters from him that do not contain some form of um, imperative to live well for Jesus. Uh, he's He's never in the business of saying, I love you. Things, you know, whatever happens, then find wonderful. It's always I love you. Now, because of what Christ done for you, live well. Live well, okay. And so this, this, um, we're making a shift now. We've looked at Paul's um, appeals and his attitudes, and um, and now he's he's going to make some. He, he's going to implore them. To, to do some things and and so a lot of what we know about christian living is we get from paul and out of his epistles so let's let's take a look at that um, he always entreats people though to live well based on what christ did not based on anything else okay so and we'll, we'll look at why in a minute but anyways Verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel uh, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them the proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake, having the same conflict which, is, which you saw in me and now here is in me. Uh, the NLT. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only I hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose and fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God Himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. We are in this struggle together, you have seen my struggle in the past and you know that I'm still in the middle of it or in the midst of it. Okay? So Paul... Um, Paul expects Christians to have Christian conduct. Okay? He never... He never minces that. And um, it's not because he's some sort of legalist. Um, I, you know, I've been in, um, well, let's put it this way. I've met a lot of hurting people who have come from churches. I've been in the situation of having it, you know, of trying to to heal somebody who's been broken by a very legalistic church where everything was rules, 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 rules. And if you didn't do what you were told, you were punished. And some of us came, grew up in homes like that where it was all about the rule. It was it wasn't, you know, there was no uh, um, joy or encouragement to live well. There was only the threat of punishment if you didn't. And Paul is not; um, he's not coming from that place where he's saying, "You got to do it. You got to do it, or or else." He's always imploring them to do it because of how it affects other people. And how it affects Jesus. Okay, we're gonna look at, we're gonna go into this a little bit more in a little bit, but um, I want you to see uh, a couple of things. First of all, um, I have a note here. Okay, so the people of Philippi took uh, due pride in their having been made a Roman colony by Caesar Augustus, which brought the privileges and the prestige of the Roman citizenship. Paul now urges them to live out their citizenship, in other words, conduct themselves, in a manner and a a sentence in this manner. And the sentence begins with these emphatic words, worthy of the gospel of Christ. What is intended by this wordplay is something like, live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. Okay? Paul's saying, "Live counterculturally," and we use that word around here a lot. Live counterculturally. Okay. Now, we've also talked in the previous weeks about you can't expect non-Christians to behave as Christians. It's not about going around thumping people with the Bible, saying you you don't look good, you don't you know. You've got to get this straightened out. It's about pointing them to Jesus. Do you remember me talking about that? Jesus does a lot of the cleaning up if we can just get people headed in the right direction, right? (coughs) Excuse me. Um, But the fact of the matter is, once you know the Lord, and once you understand that your conduct is going to affect other people and what they believe about Jesus, then really there is um, an imperative upon you to live well for Jesus. Okay? Now, perfectly, absolutely not. Nobody will outgrow their need for their Savior in this room. Okay? We're all going to need Jesus till the day we die. But contending is the key. Contending, and I talked about that. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up is contending, is contending. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, Live as though heaven was your homeland despite the fact you're in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. And those words are in many of his letters. Okay? Um, so, a couple of the points here in Paul's appeal. Live well morally and then he says to be, be steadfast, okay? Um, let me see if I can... Um, I'm going to just read something and, and we'll see if we can get, dig into it a little. It is not um, to be offered in the temple courts or the church building, but rather in the home life and the marketplace. It is the presentation of our bodies to God. This blunt reference to our bodies live as well... um, You know what? Let's go. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry about that. Sometimes I am a knucklehead. All right. Okay, Romans 12. This is really kind of saying the same thing. Um, Paul, once again... I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. This, I mean, it's the same sort of appeal. Okay? Because of what God has done for you, live well. Okay? Paul spends a lot of time in all his letters laying out, you know, the the moral character that Christians should be have, And you can find lists of things you should do and shouldn't do in all Paul's letters. But the appeal is always based on what Christ has done for you. That's where the life is in this thing, okay? If it's only based on do this because if you don't, you're a sinner, then, you know, that is the forbidden fruit syndrome. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Guess what's going to happen? Okay? There's no freedom in that. Paul talks about it. He says, look, the more the the law is really there to show us that we can't keep it, it's there to show us we have no ability in and of ourselves to do do it, it right. It's to show us we're failures and to remind us that we need a Savior. The life and the freedom and the ability to live well flows out of a relationship for Jesus. In view of God's mercies, present your bodies a living sacrifice. I'll go back to what I wanted to read. It is not to be offered in temple courts or church buildings, but rather in, in home life, in the marketplace. It is the pre- presentation of our bodies to God. This blunt reference to our bodies was calculated to shock some of Paul's Greek readers because they had been brought up on Plato's thought that... Um, the body was an embarrassing encumbrance. They had a slogan called Soma Sima Estim. The body is a tomb. Okay? The human spirit was imprisoned in it, and it was longing for escape, and, that's, and that was what happened at death. That was Plato's theory. Okay, And so he's, he's... Now look, let me finish here, because this is important. Still today, some Christians feel conscious about their body. The trad- traditional evangelical invitation is that we give our hearts to God, okay? not our bodies. Even some commentators have apparently, you know, uh, disconcerted by Paul's earthly language, suggest alternatives to this phrase. In other words, there's other, there are some translations of the Bible where they take body out um, because they don't like it. But Paul is clear that the presentation of our bodies is our spiritual act of worship. It is significant Christian paradox. No worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward. This is, now, this is, this is a profound statement. No worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward. Abstract and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. Similarly, similarly, I can't say that word, authentic Christian discipleship will include both the negative mortification of our body's misdeeds and the positive presentation of its members to God. We looked at love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we talked about the fact that sometimes we just think it's all about a heart thing. We're right back there. It's not always a heart thing. Sometimes it's, it's a physical thing. If you want to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it is not just your heart. Okay? We need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. How we live matters to God. He cares. Now, I'm trying to balance because I know we're all flawed and broken and we need grace and we're never going to perfect this thing, but it also doesn't mean we should ever quit striving to live well. Our moral conduct is important to God. And so there there needs to be this offering, this presentation of, I'm going to rededicate myself to living well for God. I'm going to rededicate myself to living well for, for God. Because it matters. And Christianity is not just about my heart with God. It is about my service with God, and it is about the character of my physical body with God and how I behave in it, okay? So, does that all make sense now? Everybody tracking with me? So, let's go back to, um, to Philippians here. Okay, so let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Okay, secondly, verse 28. Do not be ter- terrified by, uh, of your advers- adversaries. In the NLT it says, um, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but you are going to be saved even by God himself. Um, and earlier in 27, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news, fighting together for the faith. It's a phrase I wanted to look at. Fighting together for the faith. Fighting together for the faith. We we talked about spiritual warfare in week one. Fighting together for the faith is a team battle. Um, Paul is challenging them to be steadfast in that battle. He often reminds them run the race with endurance. It's not a sprint, okay? It's a marathon. Run with endurance. Finish the race. Run well. He talks about, you know, fight the good fight. Finish the race. It's a journey it is a journey, and sometimes the battle rages, sometimes the battle is barely present, you know, sometimes we feel like we're floating on grace, sometimes we feel like we're in the middle of hell. Either way, fight the good fight, fight together. No one can do it alone. Ecclesiastes talks about what, you know, what, what a shame if there's only one, because if they fall down, who's gonna pick them up? Who's gonna pick you up? And, you know, God made us interdependent. We all have different gifts. We all have different talents. We all have different strengths. There are times that I need my brothers to help me up. There are other times my brothers need me to help them up. We're in this together, together. Fight the good fight. Be steadfast in this thing. Don't give up. Don't quit. Stay with it, but stay joined with the team that God put you with, okay? Um, that's, That's what I'm seeing here. And then, part of what I'm 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 also seeing is um, is that you know there's a unity factor, right? Above all else, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of the good news. Whether I come and see you again or just hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose. You see that they're they're fight the good fight, but do it. In unity do it with one purpose and one spirit okay and and um, so unity unity is a big deal for God um, go ahead and, and pull out that uh, page we already read and and turn to the other side where you'll see fee Um, and we're, we're coming out of this thing, be steadfast, fight the good fight, stay in unity, one spirit, right? Um, and what Feast says is, nothing can frustrate the advance of the gospel more, both in a Christian community's effectiveness in their witness for Christ and in a Christian's individual life than internal unrest among believers. That is a powerful statement, okay? Because he's basically saying, the Christians have the ability to thwart God's purposes more than the devil does. Nothing can frustrate the advance of the gospel more, both in the Christian community's effectiveness in their witness for Christ and in the Christians' individual's lives, than the internal unrest among believers. Okay? Um, the gospel is all about reconciliation. It's firstly about reconciliation with God. Somebody had to pay the price for our broken sins. And without that, we were never reconciled to God. And it starts there and it just continues on and on and on. If you look, if you take a deep look at the, the fall of mankind in Genesis, you will see separation all over the place. Okay? There's separation between man and God. He has to send him out of the garden. He says, look, I can't, you know, darkness cannot be pre- present in my, in, in my presence because it'll be destroyed. You guys are broken now. You've got to get out of my presence for your own goodwill. Get out of the garden. Uh, i got to go to plan B here. But you can no longer be in my presence. Okay? Sinful man cannot be in the presence of a holy God. It would consume him. There's separation between man and God. Then there's separation between man and woman. He did it, she did it. It's her fault, it's his fault. And you see separation between man and the earth. Well, no longer can you um, just it will, will be tilling the soil be um, you know an easy job for you. It's going to come by the sweat of your brow, and it's going to the, the world's going to fight you. And and there's separation between you and the and the very earth that you're supposed to. Uh, take care of. And there's earthquakes, there's disease, there's pain, there's separation, 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 separation. Gospel is all about reconciliation and um, that is going to be true even in Christian community. And I'll tell you this, the larger we get, the more of it we'll face. Because you just, I mean, by the sheer numerical... (laughs) Increase, there's going to be more strife and more people offended and more people hurt and more people damaged. And the fact of the matter is, nobody's perfect and there's no perfect church and people are going to get hurt. And so there will always be reasons to take offense. Okay? Take, you know, I, I, let's put it this way there will always be offenses. There will always be offenses in an imperfect community you have the ability whether to take them or to leave them. And you, you know, it, it has more to do with just um, your own well-being. It has a lot to do with what God can accomplish through us as a people. Because nothing can thwart the advance of this gospel more than unrest, internal unrest, among believers. And so our ability as a people to reconcile, our ability to forgive, our ability to, um, you know, now I'm not saying you should be a punching bag for anyone, okay? I hope you're not hearing that, okay? No, you have to put boundaries around, you know, people keep hurting you, get out of their way, okay? There, there is such a thing as, as being foolish, you don't put yourself in harm's way. But the fact of the matter is, you still have to forgive. You still, it's, it's, I mean, if there's anything we've talked about during this Hurts of Life series, it's been this onus upon us to forgive. Because, why? Because we're forgiven first. Okay. If Christ wants, you know, it's, it, and we looked at the passage, Right? The the guy with the huge debt goes out and tries to collect the debt from the the small debt from the other guy after he'd been forgiven millions. You know, that's what it's like when we don't forgive. Um, And so unity is a big deal. Uh, Matthew twelve twenty five. This is Jesus. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation every city or house divided ex- against itself will not stand this is this is in essence saying you know he's talking about they're saying you know well you're casting out demons because you're the prince of darkness or something he says look you know how can the devil cast out demons that a house divided against itself can't stand that's ridiculous but the principle of that statement is can be compared to the church A divided church can do nothing for the Lord. It can't even stand on its own two feet. And so this is always going to be a constant battle. And I can guarantee you everyone in this room, including myself, will have to fight the temptation to um, be bitter or angry or offended or um, to slander somebody who may be part of this body, to to gossip ab- about them behind their back. And that stuff going on does more than just hurt you or hurt them. It hurts the entire church's ability to reach people for Jesus. And so this is a big deal for the Lord. Um, let's go back to, to Philippians real quick. Um So, we have 127, right? We just looked at 127. Also, Philippians 2. Therefore, um, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, that koinonia we looked at, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. I mean, that passage is filled with um, the call to unity. Um, 2.14 Do all things without complaining or disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault, in the middle of a perverse and crooked generation, among, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Okay, so 2.14, uh, 3.15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Um, and finally, four two, I implore Udia and I implore Sintik. now here this is this is not good this is you, you don 't ever want to be <laughs> inscribed for all time as <laughs> <laughs> disputers all right um, so uh, these two leaders. <laughs> Are going down in church history <laughs> as um, because they are they have some sort of fight going on. All right, um, they've been singled out. I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and rest uh, and the rest of my fellow workers who are names in, named in the book of life, um, and so. You know, now Paul gets specific later on in this book about um, look, I, I know there's disunity going on because I've heard about uh, these these two women, right? Let's look at um, that big bigger handout I gave you, Hughes R Hughes. This is. I'm gonna put. I'm gonna put the light-hearted spin on this. Um, I'll just read the first page here. When when a certain church in Dallas became divided, the rift was so bitter that each side instituted a lawsuit seeking to dispossess the other from the church's property. Despite scriptures warning about taking such matters before public courts. Um, The story, of course, hit the Dallas newspapers and garnered considerable interest from readers. The judge wisely ruled that it was not the province of the court to decide such matters until the case had been heard before the denomination's church court. So the the dispute was remanded to the ecclesiastical court, where eventually the decision was made to award the real estate and properties to one of the sides. The losers withdrew, formed their own church nearby. Church growth the American way. It was reported in the Dallas newspaper, no doubt with some delight, that the church court had traced the trouble to its source. The trouble began when at a church dinner, an elder had had been served a smaller slice of ham than the child seated next to him. Church hostesses make sure you are always serving heaping elder portions to the elders and deacons, or else you might come before Judge Judy. Imagine the laugh that the good people of Dallas got out of that one. Of course, this is nothing new, nor is it confined to the exotics of American church culture. Um, Leslie Flynn, in his book with the dubious title, Great Church Fights, quotes a story from a Welsh newspaper about a church that was looking for a new pastor. Yesterday, the two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. They called for hymns. The congregation sang too, each side trying to drown out the other. Then one group began shouting. Then they, the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger. Sunday morning service turned into bedlam. Through it all, the two preachers continued to outshout each other with their sermons. Eventually, a deacon called policemen. Two came in and began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. They advised the 40 persons in the church to return home. The rivals filed out, still arguing. Last night, one of the group called a Let's Be Friends meeting. It broke up with an argument. <laughs> the newspaper article was headlined, Hallelujah, Two Jacks in One Pulpit. Another good laugh for the good people of UK. Uh, I'm not smiling at the fo- follies or the absurdities of life. Both these events could be an exciting sketch on Saturday Night Live or Monty Parthen. The sad thing is, each of these stories is, is true. So, I wanted to read that, put a lighter spin on this. I mean, you can see where the... You know, the Bible says, be careful lest the root of bitterness crop up in you. Once you begin to go down that road where you entertain and nurture a wound, basically water it. Then that root of bitterness becomes, you know, full-fledged poison, and you can end up. I mean, these are the comedy extreme examples. I mean, we think, oh, that's ridiculous. Who would have a church split over a slice of ham? But it happened. It happened, and um, and so I think we need to be just very careful to guard our hearts. Okay, it's no one, no one can guard your heart for you. You will always have to do it yourself. Okay, Part of the Christian journey, part of following Christ, part of growing as a follower of Jesus is self-policing. And as a pastor, I can teach on it like I'm doing right now, but I can't actually tend your heart. That is only between you and God. And so be careful. Don't let a a root of anger turn into a root of bitterness. Don't let an offense be nurtured. Don't go to bed angry. The Bible talks about these things all the time. There's a reason for it, because they're poison. And there's a reason why they're so insidious. It's because it has the ability not just to destroy you, which it will, because the one person that will get destroyed first in this whole thing when you're full of bitterness is you. You'll be just a walking poison, just walking venom. But it has the ability to separate entire churches over a slice of ham. And how much good can that do for Christ? If we're going to reach San Francisco, if we're going to reach the broken and hurting and lost people of this city, it's not it can't be done if we have infighting. In Nehemiah, this will be my last point on unity, but this is a big deal, and so I'm spending some time here. Um, in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a, is a book where um, it comes after what they call the Diaspora, the scattering of, of the Jewish nation. The, the, both the southern and northern kingdoms were taken over, um, and the people were scattered throughout the world. Temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. They had lost their, the Jewish people had lost their identity. their basically the soul. Uh, after a few hundred years, they began to come back together. And some of these people are making the journey back to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem has no walls. And in those days, um, you know, the walls were everything for a city. You, you couldn't protect yourself. You couldn't couldn't do anything unless you had walls. And so Nehemiah makes it his sole purpose to go back and rebuild the walls so that he could protect the people of Jerusalem and they can begin to, to have worship and protect themselves from the enemy. And there's a lot of spiritual you know, store, there's lessons that can be learned in it. But one thing you see is that when he begins to rebuild, there is resistance. And I'm going back to week one, spiritual warfare. There, okay, so let's look in, in chapter 4. But it so happened when Sam Ballett heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and indignant, and he went out and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews do doing? Will they actually fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of ruggish, rubbish? Stones that are burned. And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, "Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, it's going to fall down." Okay, how many people have those those sort of thoughts? Are maybe familiar? Forget it, forget it. Why are you doing it? It's useless. You'll never amount to anything. It's got. <laughs> You think that actually there'll be something that's built that will be actually worthwhile? Do you think it's going to stand up to any sort of, you know, even if a fox goes on it, you're going to fall apart? Just give it up. Give it up. Why start? It's a bunch of rubbish. Leave it rubbish. You got no chance of succeeding. Stop it. I don't know about you guys, but I've heard that. Okay? I hear it all the time. Sometimes the enemy attacks from without. But sometimes the enemy attacks from within. If I go to chapter 5, right after they, they fight off Tobiah and Sanballat, what happens? And there was a great outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Hey, we and our sons and our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. They start complaining about each other. So the initial attack comes from without. There's this, there's a rebuilding, okay, trying to build something for the Lord. And if I can make the analogy, the enemy comes and assaults them from, from without and says, forget it, give it up, it's never going to amount to anything, just quit. Why bother? But when you you know you get past that, then all of a sudden there's a shift in strategy. And the enemy begins to pit the Jewish brethren one against the other. Well, that person's getting more food and grain than you are. Plus, did you see what they charged him for? that usury loan, and there's this fighting that goes on. okay. And I could bring up many, 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 many more examples in the Bible where you can see that something of God is beginning to take shape. Something's getting built, and it faces opposition from without and from within. And the one from within is more insidious. As, as fee said, nothing can frustrate the advance of the gospel more than internal unrest among believers, okay? All right, so, um, we'll close with that. Any, anybody have questions? Paul's appeal is live well, be steadfast,